Hello listeners, this is Krishna with Hindu Lit, a podcast where I narrate to you, the listener, stories from Indian literature including legends, mythologies and history. Today, I thought it would be good to expand on some topics covered in episodes 1 through 6. These stories are best understood from a historical perspective and an understanding of the norms and cultures of the people of India. However, as you learn about these stories, there is value in introspecting what lessons can be learned from these stories and how or even whether they are relatable or applicable to our modern world views. Some things will want to modify to meet or match our evolving modern norms while perhaps keeping pace with the intention. Others maybe we should just discard. I will try to take a critical look and hopefully give you an analysis. Please bear in mind that this analysis is merely my way of offering a perspective but may be interpreted in other ways by other people. In order to facilitate this type of discussion, I thought I would take this podcast in a question and answer format and address some questions that might have cropped up in your mind. In the Swayamvara event, does the woman always have a choice? Aren't there stories where the princesses are kidnapped? What if she already has someone she loves? Or what happens if her father doesn't approve of her choices? The Swayamvara event is followed by royals. I'm not aware of many instances of the event being performed among the common populace of the time. It appears that there were many methods for a man or in this context a, a prince or a king to find a woman to wed as is probably quite common in history marriages occurred between royals of kingdoms as a means of applying or expanding political power so in some sense the princess might have an obligation to marry a king or a prince who the father the king of her kingdom uh, deemed critical to strengthening or expanding their political power This duty is considered critical for a princess as such an action or even sacrifice of an otherwise free choice could ensure stability to the kingdom and reduce bloodshed. Sometimes this process is not directly negotiated between kingdoms but a king may hold an event where other kings princes noble warriors might be invited. This event is called the swayamvara. Sometimes this event is as simple as the princess is allowed to place a garland around one of the attendee kings and princesses um whom she desires as her husband um and you know the kings and princesses may already have been filtered to be somewhat suitable perhaps in a political context in this instance the princess or the woman may not have absolute choice but she is not necessarily required to accept someone she does not like Other times the swayamvara is a contest of sort where the suitor can take up the challenge as initiated by the king and if he succeeds then he is considered worthy for the hand of the princess usually the princess places the garland on the winner of the contest and accepts him as her husband it does not appear to be the case that the princess must accept the winner Um one example is during Draupadi's wedding she rejects Karna a warrior considered equal to Arjuna in prowess in her swayamvara event
A man could also kidnap a princess. Krishna kidnaps Rukmini, although this is what Rukmini wanted. A perhaps a starker example is one of Bhishma who comes to the hall of King Kasha and kidnaps his three daughters, Amba, Ambika and Ambalika, so that they may wed his younger brother. Bhishma arrives at the court, challenges the kings, princes and other warriors present who had come to the event uh, to woo the hands of the princess and he challenges them to a duel. And after he defeats them, takes the princesses by force. Still, even in that sense, Bhishma challenges all the other kings and having defeated them, takes the princesses. So in a sense, it could be argued that he did win them. This story we'll kind of talk about in more detail, but of the three princesses, um, two of them, I believe it is Amba and Ambika, they agree to marry Bhishma's younger brother, while Ambalika, you know, requested to be set free as she was already in love with another prince. Bhishma allowed Ambalika to return. He did not want to force her to marry his brother. The story of Shiva and Sati also involves disapproval by the father who was a king. When the father hurls insults to Shiva and disapproves of Sati's interest in wedding Shiva, Sati chooses death and kills herself. In history, uh, in Indian culture, polyandry was quite common, at least among loyals. It does not seem to be a widespread practice among the common people. Most likely, this was because the kings were wealthy and could afford to have many wives. The story of Draupadi is one well-known example of polygyny, where she was married to the five Pandava brothers. It appears that even in these stories, all sorts of relationships existed, and sometimes the women had choice, other times they had obligations as a royal, which may have limited their choice, and there are even stories where they had no choice. So all, much like real life, there are many different versions. Why do people prostrate? Prostration is a form of supplication, usually done as a show of respect or reverence. Culturally, one prostrates deities, sages, saints, parents, etc. There is some hierarchy of sort, but it appears to be loosely defined. For example, in some instances, the father is given higher precedence to the mother, but in other instances, the mother is given higher precedence. It may also be context-dependent. To the children, the mother is given higher precedence. But between a husband and wife, the husband is given the higher precedence. Prostration is a custom of free people and is voluntary. It is not to be confused with the form used by subjugated people. It is not the only means to show respect, but I suppose since it requires a certain level of humility and letting go of one's ego, it seems to be a preferred choice. Why does King Kagudmi, Narada and Revati not bother Brahma when he is meditating? 
Meditation is a practice traditionally considered necessary to achieve spiritual growth. Since it requires focus and can be considered challenging to still the mind, it is considered bad form to bother someone who is meditating. Brahma is considered a creator god and it was believed that disturbing him during meditation might affect his work and perhaps bring forth great calamity. So out of respect for this position and respect for the challenge of meditation, they decide not to bother Brahma. How could Shiva kill a small boy who would become Ganesha? Even if he did not know that Ganesha was his son, should we respect Shiva when he is so barbaric towards children? On the totem pole of deities, Shiva is high on the list as he is one of the Trimurti. It is a reasonable question to ask why Shiva would kill a small boy. From the context of the story, it appears that he did not think twice about killing Ganesha. But let's not mistake these characters to humans. Since Shiva is a god who has the ability to create and destroy, he probably saw it as merely as dismissing an interference. I would liken the analogy closer to a person destroying or dismantling a well-constructed Lego sculpture knowing that it could easily be reconstructed as opposed to a person killing a rabbit which cannot be brought back to life. You know, we can, one can argue that we are all energy and you know the life form of the boy was a form of energy that he dispelled to a different form that would not interfere with him and he certainly has the ability to bring it back. And Shiva, being quite powerful, could bring the boy back and in fact does so in the story. What happened to Rahu's head and body? The body is said to have expired. If it was anything like a human, we can imagine that it was decayed and dissolved. As for Rahu's head, it is still said to be wandering the universe. Why did Rukmini clasp Krishna's feet to stop him from killing her brother? Couldn't she just have asked him not to kill her brother? Why did she feel the need to stoop to what may be viewed as a subordinate position by clasping his feet? A fair question, and I suppose it could be viewed as such. She did not want Krishna to kill her brother Rukmi, and she probably did what she could to stop it. In this case, it may be seen as requested or even begged to spare him. I suppose I see the grasping of his legs also as a maneuver to slow or impede Krishna's movement as he was stepping forward to kill Rukmi. Krishna and Rukmi are of the Kshatriya caste or race and therefore it is considered dishonorable to run from battle and considered honorable to die a warrior's death defending his cause, whether it be values, people or kingdom. Therefore, the act of killing Rukmi would have been considered appropriate in the battlefield. On the subject of why Rukmini clasped Krishna's feet, Rukmini's temperament can be said to be one of humility and devotion. Her love for Krishna also represented itself as such. This is in contrast to Satyabhama, who was Krishna's second wife, who is said to be more forthright and loved Krishna in a more passionate sense. 
Perhaps if it was Satyabama instead of Rukmini, she may have demanded it in a more straightforward manner. But Rukmini chose to express her request by clasping the feet of Krishna. Perhaps on a more practical note, Rukmini had after all been kidnapped from her kingdom and had no authority nor could she have physically overpowered Krishna. Krishna and Rukmini also had never met prior to this event. So it is possible she thought that this was the best way to show her loyalty to him and earn his favor, thus preventing her brother's death. That concludes our discussion. With much of India's literature, the reader or listener is open to asking questions and attempting to understand the motivation and meaning of the characters and events that transpire. I wanted to allow for some free-form discussion of topics just to get the listener up to speed on some questions that he or she might have. There are many things that can be discussed, even in the small selection of episodes, and more will probably occur to the listener as they listen to more stories that I will narrate in the future. Since I don't have a live audience, I picked up a few questions that I could think of and attempted to address them as I understood them. I would like to make a correction in episode 3 where I talked about the Syamantaka jewel. In that episode, I said that Krishna married Jambavanti before returning to the palace. However, this is incorrect. He merely brings Jambavanti back with him to the palace and he marries Satyabhama before marrying Jambavanti. So in fact, Satyabhama is his second wife and Jambavanti is his third. With that, we have reached the end of this podcast on Hindu Lit. I hope you enjoyed. I hope you enjoyed it. Please join us again next time.